The Nonprofit Hour, a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do-gooders, with interviews, profiles, and documentaries. You're listening to The Nonprofit Hour on xray.fm, brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change, a public interest media lab that works to inspire, empower, and engage emerging media producers. I'm Henry Leisha. During this show, we will be learning about two nonprofits that are changing lives at home and abroad. First, we will speak with Aaron Ellis, Brianna Ellingson, and Sunny Kim from the Sexual Assault Resource Center. Founded in 1977 by two sexual assault survivors, SARC provides education, support, and advocacy to those affected by sexual violence 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Next, we will speak with Scott Brown, the president and founder of Surge and Restore. His nonprofit works to finance and train Sierra Leonean medics to maintain a sustainable reconstructive plastic surgery and burn center in McKinney, Sierra Leone. And now we turn to our host, Phil Bussey. That was, of course, the great Aretha Franklin. This is the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. I'm Phil Bussey. I am joined in the studio, crowded studio, today. Um, three people who work with the Sexual Assault Resource Center. Uh, Brianna Ellingson is a case manager and the executive director, Aaron Ellis, and Sunny Kim, who is a board member. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks for Thank having us. Absolutely. Um, let's start with some of the history. So SARC, Sexual Assault Resource Center, was founded uh, in 1977. It was founded in 1977 by two sexual assault survivors um, 40 years ago. That's a, that's a long time. It's a long time. For this kind of agency, it's a long time. Most rape crisis centers were closing two to three years after they were founded. And why, why? Let's talk about why they are closing that quickly, and then let's talk about why you guys have endured and sustained. Okay. So at that time, um, society was not seeing volunteers doing this kind of work as credible. We were seen as handholders, and survivors were seen as being very, very vulnerable. So perhaps these services needed to be conducted by the district attorney's office or county health. Our agency endured because there were two women that just absolutely insisted that they knew what they were doing, and they just kept handing leadership off to stronger and stronger and stronger women brought us forward. And I, I, I mean, there, there's a lot of things that you just said there that I'd like to talk about. One, one that idea that sexual assault should be uh, handled by uh, the district attorney, uh, that seems to be narrow, it is. It's very presumptive that every survivor wants to follow the criminal justice path as part of their process for seeking justice. There are so many different ways to define justice for a survivor, and it's not always in the courts. And and uh, so talk a little bit about then how, what SARC does. I mean, if, if it is uh, seeking, quote unquote, Justice. I mean, is 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 that is that the goal, or is it providing services? What what is it really that Sark does? 
That's a great question. The number reason, number one reason why SARC exists and will continue to exist is that there has to be a safe place for survivors to come um, and find a place where they're believed, they're supported, they can put together the plan that's most meaningful for themselves uh, to, walk, to be able to move through the recovery process. Um, so many people in the community don't understand how sexual assault occurs, uh, what the impact is on the survivor, and what it takes to help somebody come through the recovery process. But, but thinking about 40 years ago, uh, I'm certainly a lot has changed in the general consciousness yeah. and awareness. Um, has that changed what services and programs you provide? Oh, very much so. Uh, you know, 40 years ago, um, it, there was still, if a, a, a husband raped his wife, that wasn't a crime. Um, in the general consciousness, it was what was the behavior of the of the victim at the time? How did that contribute to the culpability of the crime? Um, and at that time, the only service that was going on was a support line, a place where somebody could call in and get support or have somebody come and help them file a police report. But today we know there are so many different ways in which somebody needs to be supported. Um, it could be a support group. It could be counseling. It could be case management. It could be um, just some basic information and referral. It could be, I just need help with medical care. Um, can you help me find um, safer housing? Can you help me find childcare so that I can um, find, get back into education in a different facility? So it means we have to really broaden the types of services that we offer. Yeah, and I, and I, and I think as, as much as awareness about sexual assault has uh, expanded over the 40 years that SARC has been in operation, uh, so has the definition. Yes. And and that that would seem to be um, that I mean, so you guys have started to provide services for uh, women who have been uh, involved in sex trafficking. Yeah. And, you know, it's beyond it's we um, we move beyond serving women. It's the whole gender continuum. So it's met if we stay with the binary, it's men and women. But if you go through the whole gender continuum, it's you can identify in a variety of ways. Um, so that shapes the way in which we um, develop our services. They're much more comprehensive. They're much more um, open. And it reflects how you support a survivor. A survivor uh, identifies how they present and they identify the services that they want and they identify um, how they move through the process. Yeah. And then let's talk about that a little bit because um, very consciously, uh, Sark uses the word survivor rather than victim, which is which is a cultural change it's, as well. Yeah. Um, but obviously, it's it's more than semantics. Can you describe the the difference? And do you remember when that change came about? Yeah, I've been in the work almost twenty five years now, and when I began, it definitely was using the verbiage of victim, and it probably changed about fifteen years ago. 
And even the term survivor can be challenged, that not every person identifies as as a survivor. They're still in the victim um, phase of their life. And so uh, there's a whole process. You could, um, you're victimized, and then you start to move through the survival. But we can't stop there because there's so much more for someone when you're um, the the victimization becomes integrated. You're no longer defined by what's happened to you. Your um, it just becomes part of who you are, and becomes a, uh, it begins to strengthen who you are. So then you learn to begin to thrive in your life. So you go from victim to survivor to thriving. Does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. Aaron Ellis is the executive director for SARC. Um, I'm going to turn the attention a little bit to uh, Brianna Ellenson, who is one of the case managers. Mm-hmm. Um, so you are, let's talk about how do, how do people find out about the services? How do people actually get to you? Yeah, so there's a number of ways. Um, SARC is uh, what we call a first responder. So um, when somebody chooses to go to the hospital to have um, a sexual assault exam done, um, an advocate from our agency is called out in Washington County. Um, If somebody makes a report, if they decide that they want to report with law enforcement, um, we do a lot of work to build relationship with the law enforcement pardon me, the law enforcement agencies in Washington County, and they will call us out. Um, they'll call an advocate out to be with the survivor during that process as well. Um, so that's one way. We also do a lot of um, work to build community partnerships with other agencies for a, a wide range of social services um, in, in our county. And so um, we have relationships with those agencies where they will call us out if they're working with somebody as well. Um, and actually, we have a lot of a lot of agencies outside of our county that will refer to us quite a bit um, because there's some gaps in services um, in the area. Um, and um, so we have schools that will call us out, school counselors, school uh, resource officers. Um, we also will get uh, referrals from the district attorney's office, people who may have slipped slipped through the cracks somewhere um, earlier in the process and now have now made it to the district attorney's office we um, have DAs and advocates, uh, victims advocates from that office that will loop us in. Um, and then we have folks that are just self-referred that um, either hear about our, you know, they connect with us through the support line or um, or through word of mouth. Somebody has told them that they can receive services um, or they actually just Google, you know, how, you know, how do I get help around this? And they'll get to us that way. So there's really a plethora of and, and, and I know that each person that comes in has, has uh, his or her own individual reasons or story, but is there a common response when people first come in in terms of, I mean, obviously nobody wants to be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a resistance to being there? Is there an openness? I mean, how, how, how do people usually come to you, uh, emotionally speaking? Yeah, so just philosophically, we don't, uh, we don't, push our services on anybody. So that's kind of the first thing that pops out at me when when you ask that question is that um, we don't work with anybody who doesn't want to be there. We, um, we're there if they need us and if they want us and if they don't need us and they don't want us, then um, then 
we're not pushing that on them. And and some of the cases where I think oftentimes I see that come up is with youth when they're really being pressured by either parents or law enforcement or some other authoritative figure, a counselor or a teacher, that you need to heal from this, you need to get help. And they'll refer with the best of intentions. But our philosophy is that we're not going to push services on that youth, even even um, being a minor and under the age of 18. Um, their healing process is their own. And if they want to um, utilize us in that healing process then we are we are there for them um and if they don't then we're there for them if if and when they choose to so can you just talk to me a little bit more about like how how are people coming to you uh, emotionally speaking yeah so emotionally speaking i think um we have a lot of ideas about the way that sexual assault survivors present and um you know, when you once you get into this work and you and you really start um, seeing kind of the gamut of the of the uh, of survivors and the way they present, you see how really inaccurate that is. So um, people come to us emotionally in in a variety of states. So um, and it fluctuates. You know, sometimes you have somebody that comes to you and is really very stoic and unemotional and can really talk about what happened to them. Um, without that emotional piece presenting itself. Um, sometimes you have folks that come in are very, very highly emotional and have a really hard time talking about what happened to them at all. Um, sometimes you have people that really just don't want to talk about, you know, about what happened to them because they're trying to hold off um, from becoming emotional. Um, you have people that and something that we see a lot when you do this work too is is that it really fluctuates. So somebody at, at some point might be able to talk about what happened um, with some distance, as almost as though they're talking about this having happened to somebody else. And then um, something may trigger them, and all of a sudden they're very emotional. Um, and um, so that's hopefully I answered your question. But yeah, it, there is no standard response in terms of the way that people come to us and the way that they present emotionally. And we see that from everywhere in those initial reports at the hospital and with law enforcement to even before, you know, we get a lot of folks that haven't even decided yet if they want to report, if they want to go to the hospital. Um, and then, you know, down the line when they're at the DA's office or um, when they've just been engaging in services for, for quite a while and, um, and have decided not to go, you know, um, through one of those reporting routes. So... And then as I mean as a case manager just help me quantify this a bit how many how many people are you working with at a given time So that really varies as well um we we're very flexible in this work so sometimes um you mean any individual case manager or the agency as a whole Yeah the agency as a whole and and then the case managers like I mean what what's this is not uh, you know this is not a quick appointment mm -hmm. this is I I would imagine this is it's a process and you're not wanting to rush people through Absolutely. um you know so it seemed like a very intensive in terms on the 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 the, the the case managers themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So you kind of hit the nail on the head. We don't have, uh, we don't have a standard. It's not like you get 15 sessions with us and then you're done. We really follow people all the way through that process as long as they need us. Um, so that changes the way it looks a little bit. And, and it's the same with our counseling services, same with our support line. Um, really all of our services are set up that way. So that makes it so that you don't have this kind of rotating caseload where you're always having the same amount of folks because they're doing a standard number of sessions or a standard number of um, visits or calls or, or whatever that is. Um, so it really, in my personal, I can't speak for some of the other programs because I, I'm not in those programs, but I know in the case management program, um, it's 
it's typical to have anywhere. I would say at the low end, we're never supporting less than 20 cases at a time, I would say. And then at the high end, I think um, I personally have been at 45, 50. Um, but keeping in mind that every every individual that you're working with is at a different point in their healing process. So um, there's some folks that you're that it's a lot of um, a lot of support that you're giving them at that time, showing up for a lot of different things and speaking to them on you know on a daily basis, maybe even multiple times a day. Um, and then what we see is that as folks continue in their healing process, you know, the the support that we're giving is is um, farther apart, if that makes sense. So it's not as as intensive as in the beginning. But, but I mean, 40, 50 people that you're working with, that's that's a heavy load. I mean, uh, emotionally speaking for yourself, I would imagine. Yeah, so we do. I, I'm so lucky to be at Stark where self-care is really valued and really, um, I don't want to use the word enforced, but but our... Um, it's enforced. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> our, our management team, are they're really good about... Um, about not only um, encouraging us to regulate ourselves, but also if they notice that we're we're kind of doing the martyr thing and trying to do too much, that they're they're stepping in and saying, "Hey, you need to you need to take a day. You need you know." We, and we have really great benefits in terms of ta- being able to take a mental health day. And maybe you're not like sick, but you know, you need to take some time to take care of yourself. So, and we're really good about support. I mean, when you're working in an environment where you're so close to the people that you're working with and you're so incredibly supported, it's um, easier to take on the heavy stuff. So Brianna Ellington is a case manager for Sark and you had a Lady Gaga song you wanted to play. Yeah. So, um, I think that that was a really powerful, you know, we see a lot of stuff in the media around perpetrators and it, it's um i'm grateful that it's becoming more um more publicized uh these really like um influential media figures that are that are committing sexual assaults and and folks that are really trying to hold them accountable whether that be through the criminal justice system or whether that be through boycotting you know just make public awareness and and boycotting the the products that they're putting out and um but i think that this was one that that was really powerful for me and in, in having a, a really influential media figure come out and and talk about that from the other from the other side of it in terms of being a survivor that's a really vulnerable thing to do and i think folks are um are legitimately concerned sometimes for the way that they might be um punished for that so that that was one that i think is is really important for us to listen to let's take a listen you tell me it gets better it gets better in time you say i pull myself together pull it together you'll be fine tell me what the hell do you Tell me how the hell could you know, how could you know, till it happens to you, you don't know how it feels, how it feels, till it happens to you, you won't know, it won't be real, no it won't be real. Won't know how 
Lady Gaga, this is the Nonprofit Hour. I'm Phil Bussey, and we are talking with uh, three women who work with uh, SARC, Sexual Assault Resource Center. Um, the executive director, Aaron Ellis, and Brianna Ellingson, who is a case manager, and Sunny Kim, who is a board member. Um, Sunny, we haven't we haven't really spoken with you yet. Let's turn our attention to you for a little bit. So, you, why did you? What brought you to the board? Uh, well, literally, somebody recruited me, a previous board member recruited me to be on the board um, to bring some of my marketing background, marketing communications background to the table. Um, and I mean, this is this is not marketing for Nike. This is marketing. Uh, this is very different marketing. Absolutely. Can, can you talk a little bit about the, the strategies that you use and. I mean, I guess your audience is both uh, people who's who you're hoping to present the services to, but also you're you're you do need to have some community support and some funder support. So there's a couple of different tiers to your marketing. A ton of community and private, corporate, public support is needed, especially right now. And right now, we're just uh, doing all that we can to get by to raise the awareness of SARC and the services and the issues at hand. Um, the agency does not have a full-time development marketing person. We are a working board, and we are doing all that we can to um, do the work that we need to do. Excellent. And and, um, and go back to uh, Executive Director Aaron Ellis. So you've been there 13 years. Yeah. No, 16. 16, I'm yeah. sorry. No, it's okay. Just had her 15th last year. Mm-hmm. Um, what keeps you well first off how did how did you start in this job what 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 brought you to sark my background is public health so uh, child maternal health is where i started and my field uh, has just become more and more narrowed i was doing pediatric um, educate nutrition education and what we were, what I was finding is that families were not really interested in learning about five fruits and vegetables a day. Um, that was not a priority. And what I was learning is that so many of these families were living with some sort of crisis in their lives. And as I learned more, um, that became more of a priority for me. 
So the field becomes more uh, narrowed. So I started working at juvenile departments, running their victim service departments, and then uh, discovered SARC uh, in 2001. And I'll be there probably until I retire or someone else says (laughs) otherwise. Um, I have a teenage daughter and that's part of why I stay is I want to be in an agency that continues to make community change, that our children um, are for it's threefold, creating safer environments raising children to be part of this social justice movement, um, and that uh, I want my daughter to see what it means um, to be a woman who can make amazing choices for herself, um, and she sees that in the in the staff and the volunteers on a regular basis. P- powerful place to be. I, I absolutely I would, I would imagine so and, and but you touch on something really interesting to me and, and and I would think that a lot of what Sark does or at least what I'm perceiving is responsive. People are coming there, they have they have a need, but you started to touch on sort of being proactive. Yes. And and it, how much of that is is the work that you do and are even able to do? We have a prevention program. Uh, and it's been it's primary prevention, which means getting at the root causes that contribute to sexual violence. So you're wanting to um, keep something from happening long before. And that doesn't mean risk reduction for a potential victim. It means keeping perpetrator behavior from ever developing. Uh, and so that program has been uh, functioning probably for the last 11 years. So it's a nine-week curriculum that we are able to implement in a variety of local high schools. Um, and that's that's amazing material to, to work with. I, yeah, I would imagine. You know, I mean, there, there was a, a number of studies that came out a few years ago about the prevalence of sexual assault on college campuses. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, and it's, it's an alarming, um, I, I can't remember the numbers, one out of three, two out of, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's. It's one in five, I believe. One in, one in five. And, and, you know, then Vice President Joe Biden did a really great job of pushing through Title IX, a number of forms, and there seemed to be a number of social campaigns. Yes that were going on is it making a change is this is this generation uh that that's coming up through high school and through colleges uh more aware and is awareness leading to less incidents i don't know if we can really measure yet uh the change we we can look at using pre and post exams with the students we're working with. So we can look at short term. Long term, I'm not quite sure where we are yet with um, the incidence and prevalence lowering. But what I do know is that the language is changing. The conversation is changing. And it's not just that my daughter grew up in my household and understands this material. But when I'm talking to her friends, I'm hearing what they're talking about, the language that they're using, the approach that they're taking. Uh, and it's not just the, what the girls are talking about, but it's what everybody is talking about. So it, it makes me very hopeful. Good. Good. That was that was going to be my next question. Is is um, level of optimism? It would just you are you work in such a difficult field, and and you are having tragedies brought to you 
consistently. Yet you guys all seem to remain optimistic. It's pretty easy. How so? <laughs> I mean, that, that seems that's like. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's why we all put our socks on uh, every morning and come to work is that we are working and supporting the most amazing individuals who have chosen. They're they're not forced to come through our doors, as Bree said earlier. They chose to come to our organization. They have invited us in during the most intimate moments of their lives, and we're watching folks work the hardest they've ever worked in their lives. And how hopeful um, the organization needs to be in order to hold that space for survivors to do that hard work that they do every day. Um, So that's why we're hopeful, is we just continue to watch survivors come through to the other side. Yeah, if I can, I mean, it gives you the, it is heavy work, but it gives you the opportunity to really experience firsthand how incredibly resilient people are. People survive. Um, and that's what we see time and time again is you start working with somebody and you see how really hurt and harmed they are. And then you watch them go through this process and kind of come out the other side of it. And, and it's something that never goes away and that they carry with them, but something that doesn't hurt as, you know, it doesn't hurt anymore. They're able to um, to move forward with their lives. So that's incredibly powerful to watch that process and um, to feel like you were able to support that process. And how much contact after services do do people have with, with SARC? Or is it this... Uh... You want to move on and you want to be put that behind you or what 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 sort of relationship continues? So most folks, once they feel that they don't need you anymore, they they really do kind of continue on with their lives and um and it's beautiful, you know. Sometimes it's sad that you you knew this person and you saw them through this whole thing, and, and that's kind of the end of that working relationship there. Um, and then there's other folks that they move through that process, they move on with their lives, they no longer need you, but then they pop in. You know, they may stop by the office or um, send you an email or a text and just say, "Hey, I'm doing great." And and people love to share that with you too. The people that you work with love to share, "Hey, I'm having a baby." Hey, I found a partner and I'm getting married, and or I'm back in school. You know, they love to share. Um, to share those details about how they are thriving and they're surviving and they and they have moved on from um, that terrible experience that that you were there with them or they come back and volunteer right that, that, that was I wanted to wrap up this conversation with talking about that there is an opportunity for volunteers at SARC oh is there and how does how does that work and and how do you prepare someone to help out I mean I think somebody can show up with good intentions yeah, yeah. So um, it's there's a continuum here. So we are always looking for volunteers. Then there is a kind of a vetting process just to make sure that this is a good fit. It's not the um, a great fit for everybody. Uh, and then there is uh, 45 hours of very intensive training to prepare someone to do the work. And then there are various places in which a volunteer can be um, assigned. So it's the direct service with the support line. So they're uh, going out to hospitals, police departments, secured locations to provide crisis intervention and support. 
They can be uh, volunteering in the prevention program, so they're out in the schools. They can be in the office working on projects. They can be in our Latina program doing culturally specific work. They can be helping with case management, a whole variety of things. Um, pretty much we can find something for someone. Volunteers provide 50% of our service provision. That saves our agency about 230000 uh, dollars a year, two hundred thirty. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of money. Is there is there a common response after the first time of volunteering? People come back and they say, "Wow, that was that was harder than I thought, or that was different than I thought, or that was more invigorating than expected." The common response, uh, because what will happen is after their first time, kind of out in the field, they must immediately connect with staff and debrief and talk, you know, talk through what their experience was like. And they feel so honored to have been there. Very, very honored. Um, and now it cements that they're here in the right place doing what they pretty much thought they knew they were going to be doing. Um, and then we just kind of process through what they were feeling through at that time. May I build on that? Yeah. So we also, I, I think, coming back to what I had said earlier about it really being a community, about Sark really being a community and a team that supports each other, we also don't send our volunteers like out into the ocean. You know, they we have a staff person that's on call and they're kind of checking in with them. Um, and some folks don't need as much of that check-in, uh, but other folks do. And so they, they've got support there kind of during that process while they're supporting somebody and then after. So they're connected still. And you guys have an event coming up? We sure do. Um, so it's the 40th anniversary. It's our Ruby fundraiser um, at the Ecotrust building. Great space. Um, we've got a great band lined up, Moody Little Sister, an awesome DJ who plays at Tilt and Valentine's, um, Mr. Moo Moo. Um, we have over 30 donated items for silent auction and raffling. Um, so come on out. We've got food and drinks provided uh, last Thursday of the month, April 27th from 5 to 8. People can buy tickets where? It's free in all ages. Excellent. Aaron Ellis is the executive director for Sexual Assault Resource Center. Brianna Ellenson is a case manager. And Sunny Kim is a board member. Thank you all for coming in. And I think we're going to go out with a Florence and the Machine. Dog days are over. Yeah. yeah. Thank, Thank you, you so Phil. Thank the you. nonprofit hour.
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Nonprofit Hour, brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change. The Nonprofit Hour 2017 season is brought to you in part by generous support from Nonprofit Professionals Now, a boutique search service serving Portland's nonprofits. Wholly owned by a nonprofit, NPN specializes in finding nonprofit executive directors and development directors. If your organization or business is interested in underwriting our radio show, please email phil at mediamakingchange.org. Next, we will speak with Scott Brown, the president and founder of Surge and Restore. His nonprofit works to finance and train Sierra Leonean medics to maintain a sustainable reconstructive plastic surgery center in McKenney, Sierra Leone. For more, we turn to our host, Phil Bussey. Phil Bussey, it's the Nonprofit Hour. I'm joined in the studio today by Dr. Scott Brown, who has an organization, Surge and Restore. How are you doing? Doing well, Phil. So the, the, the song that we were listening to uh, on the intro there, that's that's your band, correct? It is, correct. So you're, you're a doctor and you're a musician. Yeah, I, I try to try to, try to to do both. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about uh, Ojos Fejos and what brought them together and what, what the style of the music is? Host Fails is, is, is a concept of, of a musical project that I had after going on uh, several uh, medical trips. I've been on maybe about close to 30 international medical trips now, and I had heard these rhythms from these countries. I've mostly worked in Latin America and Africa, and uh, those rhythms aren't really um, available for a lot of Americans to listen to. Uh, I was really impressed by some of the music from Mali, and Carlos Santana's first couple albums, so I thought, uh, why don't I try to do something infusing that with American blues? Most of this is music from, uh, made by and about oppressed people, and uh, um, I speak a couple languages, and I just thought that uh, uh, there wasn't really anything like it in Portland, and it's an all-original project. We've got a seven-piece band, and uh, we call our style Afro-Latin blues with a social conscience. Excellent. Well, that- Let's let's take let's talk about your organization then, uh, Surgeon Restore, and uh, this is several years old. It's about four years old. We're five hundred one c three received approval in two thousand thirteen. Correct. Okay, and and the idea the the idea is what. Uh, Surgeon Restore is working primarily in Sierra Leone, and we are. Uh, supporting another charity from the United Kingdom called Research Africa. We are establishing Sierra Leone's first and only plastic and reconstructive surgery department, uh, which includes training the, uh, the plastic surgeons to work in the department and the anesthesiologists, as well as providing education for the nurses and the physical therapists. I just want to clarify, we're not talking about like uh, L.A. boob job uh, plastic surgery. <laughs> we're talking about something much more... Uh, essential and life-changing exactly and uh outside of the united states usually what you refer to as called cosmetic surgery and plastic surgery refers to cleft lips cleft palates burns congenital malformations okay let's i want to take a little bit bigger view and, and just talk to us a little bit about sierra leone 
obviously in, it was in the news uh, three, four years ago with the Ebola outbreak. Um, you know, just just devastating on the population of the country, uh, in terms of, of course, uh, the illnesses, but also in terms of the isolation to the country. Exactly. The, the, the news press that Sierra Leone has had over the last couple of decades has not been good. First, they went through the Blood Diamond War, which went for about 12 years, uh, ended approximately in 2003 or 2004. They had about 10 years of uh, uh, no uh, catastrophes, and then they got struck by the Ebola virus. And our medical team was there about two months before the virus uh, hit, hit the country. And we had to suspend all our operations for about two years. It took that long to eradicate the virus. And the Ebola took about 5,000, 6,000 lives uh, from Sierra Leone between uh, 2014 and 2015. And when, when were you able to return? We returned in November of 2016, just a few months ago. I came back from about a three-week uh, mission there. And what can you describe when you landed in Sierra Leone this last time? Uh, what you saw, what, what changes you, you, you observed? Well, there has been some changes that have, uh, uh, there's been some improvements. Um, the roads are better. We used to have to take about a four hour bumpy ride with, on a, uh, in a Jeep through the jungle to get to our hospital. Now the Chinese are there along with other uh, Western mining interests, and that road now is paved. What once took us four years now has taken us about less than two hours to get to our hospital. So, so that is that that's been good, and also some of the uh, roads in the city and sidewalks have been established, which we didn't have when I first started going there in 2008. However, some other things are not as good. Our, our internet connection was probably the worst that we've had since my first couple of years there. Uh, also, we had a lot of electricity um, power outages uh, in. 2013 electricity was established through most of the large cities in the country outside the capital when i first started going there from 2008 to 2013 it was all on a generator and the generators only ran during the day um unfortunately they had some problems with the dam uh where the electricity was coming from for a couple months before i came there and then about two weeks before our trip they had to uh they'd been using generators again there was a power surge and it burned down uh, one of our medical buildings. It's terrible. It wasn't good. And how do you bounce back from something like that? I mean, that, that that's, has to be frustrating. You're, you're here in Portland. Sierra Leone is 6,000 miles away, 10,000 miles away. Uh, and you get a text that a building's been burned down. Is that, how, do, how do you respond? It, it, was, it, was, it was shocking. Um, it was shocking because we had our uh, physical uh, therapy uh, department for our hospitals in that building, and we'd been training some people in physical therapy. We'd spent a lot of money on that, and also our, uh, we had our lab there. And there was a doctor from Cameroon uh, doing Ebola research. He lost everything. What you have to learn in Africa, uh, working in sub-Saharan Africa, is that you have to take one step at a time. And there may be um, small steps forward, small step backward, but you just have to have patience, and you have to have confidence, and you just have to keep going. And you've, you've and you've also have had some of those steps forward, not just small, but some big ones. You, you you've received a two year fellowship, uh, not you, but your organization has a two year fellowship. Uh, we we've had we had a this is a this was probably administrative wise the most successful uh, uh, trip I've had there, and I've been there about eight times I think. 
maybe nine. And um, it took us five years to find an anesthesiologist to train because in Sierra Leone, there were no anesthesiologists. And the anesthesia that is done there is done by nurses, and it's done with using ketamine injections, which is what we use on military, uh, the combat front, and uh, spinal anesthetics. So they're almost well over 50 years behind the United States with that. So uh, it was difficult finding a doctor to convince uh, that anesthesiologist was uh, the practice of doctors and not nurses. So uh, we found a, a gentleman, and, and he's training in Ghana now. And then uh, we were able to interview three candidates for that position on this trip, which was huge, and we're very happy about that. Um, and uh, we uh, brought the first anesthesia mach- machine to Sierra Leone uh, a couple years ago, and it's working fine. We had some problems with oxygen supply, but that's that's all solved now. And I, I just want to underscore that. Uh, Surgeon Restore, your, your organization, you are looking to train locals. Exactly. We Our goal is to, to have the Sierra Leone Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery Department be self-sufficient. We realize that's going to probably take about 10 years or so. And, 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 and that, that is um, somewhat unique. Uh, in in the relief agencies, is that is that correct? Right. It goes back to the saying that you, you can you, you can give a man a fish, or you can teach him how to fish. Many of the medical teams that go to other countries go there just to do surgeries, and they don't teach the man to fish, so to speak. And we are going to teach the man how to fish, so to speak, and and let Sierra Leoneans run their own department. Dr. Scott Brown is an anesthesiologist at OHSU and has an organization, Surge and Restore. Also has a band, Ojos Fejos. How about let's take a listen to another song. This show is made possible with generous support from Chinook Book, whose mobile app rewards your sustainable lifestyle choices with sweet savings at hundreds of neighborhood businesses near you. Use it for tonight's dinner or your next adventure. Download the app free at chinookbook.com. This is the Nonprofit Hour. I'm talking with Dr. Scott Brown, who runs an organization called Surgeon Restore, which is working primarily in Sierra Leone, uh, establishing uh, medical facilities and training physicians, uh, specifically anesthesiologists, to do reconstructive work uh, for uh, residents in that country. You've just returned uh, from your eighth trip to Sierra Leone. Uh, you're an anesthesiologist here. You're, you're doing well. Um, you could take trips to Palm Springs. You could, you could, you, you could be out golfing. Why, why are you doing this? What's, what's the motivation? Where does that come from? It probably comes back from my hometown. I grew up in north central Montana in a town called Haver. And Haver is about 30 miles from the Canadian border right in the center of the state. My father owned a, uh, a hardware and appliance store. And 
uh, Haver is in the vicinity of four Native American reservations. We have the Chippewa Cree about 15 miles to the south, which is where I take my stage name, Robbie Cree, in the honor of the Cree tribe that uh, uh, is in that reservation. We have the Blackfoot about 100 miles west, and we have the Grovants and the Cinnaboins, each about 25 to 40 miles east. And my father had a contract to the reservations, and, and I had to work as a uh, for as long as I can remember. I used to have to go work in a store, and then when I was able to drive, I'd have to deliver appliances out in the Native American reservations. And it was quite shocking seeing the conditions that they lived in. I think it probably stems from that. And, and here, I mean, again, we're, we're, we're removed in, in Portland from Sierra Leone and uh, the horrors of, of what was an intracted war, uh, what is poverty there. Um, how does your organization, or how do you use your organization to, to bring that to people here in Portland? And, and, and how do you find that people react to it? That's not been an easy thing to do, Phil. We really, really uh, rely on people like yourselves to help us get the word out. It, it's all a matter of PR and publicity and hopefully getting some, some media coverage. I tell as many people in the, uh, you know, the, the medical community here, some are interested, some are not. We try to promote that through uh, through my band as well as most of the songs that we do in my band are, have to do with human rights or social justice in Africa and Latin America. And it's just a matter of getting the word out. And and it's also a matter of, I mean, you Surgeon Restore as well as providing uh, facilities and training in Sierra Leone, also here in Portland, provides somewhat of a gathering place. Uh, you're bringing on some board members who have connections to uh, Africa, African nations, if not Sierra Leone specifically? Correct. Uh, we will have two new board members. Uh, there's a woman from Sierra Leone. Her name is Aminata Say. She'll be uh, joining our board very shortly after she uh, is through with a couple commitments. And then we have a, a good friend of mine who's a, who's a doctor uh, at OHSU. is one of our fellows. His name is Chidi Ani. He's from... West Africa from Nigeria. They speak similar languages as the Nigerian pigeon is very close to the Sierra Leone Creole and uh, their cultures are somewhat the same and, and we're real, really happy to get Africans involved in our charity, spe specifically on our board of directors. We think that's very important. And, and is there much of a, a Sierra Leone, uh, West African uh, community or residents here in Portland? There is. There's about 300 Sierra Leoneans in Portland. They will be having their independence celebration one week after our fundraiser. And there um, uh, is another, there, there are two Sierra Leonean groups in the Sierra Leone community um, that have a, a somewhat of a nonprofit. There's also quite a few Nigerians and Ghanaians here, more than there are Sierra Leoneans. Uh, and how about you make a plug for your, your fundraiser? Our fundraiser will be held Saturday, April 29th at Carvelin Hall, which is a building in the St. Philip Neri Parish in southeast Portland on 16th and Division. It's at 6 p.m. There will be music by my band, Ojos Feos, also by Ripe Red Apple, and by Michelle DeCourcy. There will be a screening of our documentary, which is about 45 minutes, and there will be a silent art auction. Dr. Scott Brown is an anesthesiologist at OHSU and is the founder of Surgeon Restore, which does work in Sierra Leone. Thank you so much for coming in. How about uh, setting up a final song from us from Ojos Fejos? That'd be great, Phil.
do you want to actually is there a song that you want to pick and just say a little bit about how it came oh. together uh we have we have we have two songs on a new album that are political one's about um uh, the political change in egypt and one's about the lost boys of sudan excellent how about uh let's take a listen to the one about the lost boys of sudan great it's called los chicos de de sudan it's in spanish but it's about the lost boys of, of sudan uh, uh which there's been several documentaries uh reflecting the the flight of of young men from the sudan uh, during the sudanese civil war Thanks for tuning in to the Nonprofit Hour on xray.fm. We would like to thank our guests, Aaron Ellis, Brianna Ellingson, and Sunny Kim from the Sexual Assault Resource Center, as well as Scott Brown of Surge and Restore. On April 27th, SARC will be hosting its 40th anniversary fundraiser in conjunction with Sexual Assault Awareness Month at the EcoTrust Building in Northwest Portland. And on April 29th, Surge and Restore will be hosting a fundraiser at St. Philip Neri Parish for Sierra Leone's only reconstructive plastic surgery and burn center. The Nonprofit Hour is a production of the Media Institute for Social Change and KXRY Radio, xray.fm. Our host is Phil Bussey, and our producer and editor is Henry Leisha. You can follow us on Facebook or via our Twitter handle at Nonprofit Hour. Archives of past shows can be found on our SoundCloud page. Questions, comments, or ideas about the show can be sent to nph at mediamakingchange.org. Thanks for tuning in to the Nonprofit Hour on KXRY Radio, xray.fm. Join us on Monday mornings at 6 a.m. and Tuesday afternoons at 1. Have a great week. <laughs>